To those of you who are members or friends or guests, we appreciate you joining us today for another online worship service here at Highland Crest. I imagine your life is like mine, where there are a few distinct days where you meet someone that forever changes your life. Around 20 years ago, in this very room, I'm looking off to my right, where I met a young lady named Melody on a Sunday evening service. I introduced myself to her. She was on the front row and I was on the second row. And little did I know that I would one day marry that young lady. That day forever changed my life. Well, in our passage of Scripture that we're turning to today, in the book of Acts, as we return to this series, we're going to read about a man named Saul, who at one time was a fierce opponent of Christianity. And then he met Jesus, and his life was forever changed. Why don't you take your copy of the Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts, and we will read the first nine verses of Acts chapter 9. Here's what God's Word says. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. We appreciate the scriptures because they point to Jesus and Jesus alone can change lives from the inside out. And not only does Jesus change lives of the first century, but he is still changing lives today. Now would you join me and let's pray. Our Father, as we glance around our world today, we see a world in need of hope. We pray for the message of Jesus dying on the cross, making it possible to have sins forgiven to go forth. As we look closer to home, we see a federal government that is just under conflict continually. And the truth is, when it comes to news, we're not even sure whom to believe. We have so many sources of information and we don't know which ones can be trusted. 
But we pray for our leaders that they would act in accordance with the truth of the Bible. And then in recent days, as we consider our own state and the strife and the conflict and the the blame shifting that we have heard and observed, how we pray for our leaders to be responsible, to, to lead in the way that you would have them to lead. We pray for individuals right now that are experiencing fear. Perhaps they have the virus themselves and they are concerned and they, they, they need you to heal them and, and provide strength and good health again. Lord, we pray that you would do just that. We pray for churches, Bible-preaching churches in our city, in our county. Would you allow them to prosper as their word goes forth, that they emphasize your goodness. They emphasize sin and, and what Jesus did to eradicate that sin and how we need to place our faith and repent of that sin and believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. May, may these churches have an impact in our community. And as not only Highland Crest, but other churches look to begin to, to gather and assemble, we pray for your blessings and wise planning that would go forth and that you would keep people from being sick during this time. And as we pray for our government leaders, along with our church leaders to work together, Lord, we pray for our own families, that husbands and lives, wives would work with one. They would, they would not only be one, but it would be evident the way they lead their families. We pray for children that the older siblings and the younger siblings would get to get along as well. Lord, we pray that lives would be changed and we would become more and more like Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Now I want you to invite you to return back to the book of Acts here to chapter 9. In the 18th century, there were two men that were lawyers and unbelievers in Christianity. One of them's name was Lord Littleton. The other was Gilbert West. They had gathered together one day and said to one another, you know, Christianity stands upon a a very unstable foundation. There were only two things that actually support it. The alleged resurrection of Jesus and the alleged conversion of Saul of Tarsus, which is what we see here in Acts chapter 9. If if one would disprove the resurrection and this conversion, well, Christianity would be like a house of cards. It would collapse. So Gilbert West said, all right then, I'll write a book on the alleged resurrection of Jesus Christ and disprove it. And Lord Littleton says, well then, I'll write a book and I'll disprove Saul's conversion. So the two go on their own ways, and they begin to investigate and study. Time passes, and they gather together again. And one of them says to the other, you know, I I have been doing some research, and I have to confess, I'm actually seeing some evidence here that supports Christianity's views. The other replies, 
to tell you the truth, I'm finding the same thing. How about we just continue our studies and see where they take us? Whether these two men actually did write these books. One of them wrote a book on resurrection, and the other wrote a book on on Saul's conversion. Gilbert West's book was called The Resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he actually argued for the historical fact of that resurrection. And Lord Littleton wrote a book that was entitled The Conversion of St. Paul. But he too actually wrote in favor of that historic event. These two events serve as pillars. For one, to be able to discredit the conversion of Saul or Paul, I'm using those words interchangeably because it's the same person, would allow a person to call into question all the writings of St. Paul that make up so much of the New Testament. Well, now let's consider this story here as we read it again in Acts chapter 9. We began our service by reading this. Now let us just go word for word through this passage. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, But Saul. Now who is this Saul? In Philippians chapter 3, he provides a bit of a biography. It is there where we learn that he was a Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was from Tarsus, which was one of the leading cities in the world that provided education. He himself was what was called a Pharisee, a deeply religious man. He was trained by one of the elite, a man named Gamil. Likely his training would have been about eight years. According to Philippians chapter 3, Saul or Paul identified himself as blameless. He was a moral man. According to one Bible teacher, G. Campbell Morgan, he said that Saul was actually a member of the Sanhedrin. And as we've worked through the book of Acts, this first century Supreme Court often stood directly opposed to the resurrection of Jesus and followers of Christ. Saul could have had a front row seat to those trials that involved Peter and John. And so now let's continue as we look at 9.1. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. The word still implies that he's been doing this earlier in the books of Acts, and he has. According to chapter 7, verse 58, when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was killed, the people that threw rocks at Stephen took their garments and they laid them at Saul's feet. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Chapter 8, verse 3 says, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It says here in 9, chapter 1, that he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. This bull that was let loose in this vineyard, trampling up and bringing destruction, was now offered off to Damascus, a city of 130 to 150 miles away, 
to try to capture Christians that had fleed as a result of the persecution in Jerusalem. And his intention was to bring them back to Jerusalem where they could be arrested. As he is doing that, verse 3 tells us, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now, this isn't the only time we see the story of Saul's conversion in the book of Acts. He would go on and tell his story in the 22nd chapter, as well as the 26th chapter. In Acts chapter 22, verse 6, the scripture records that Paul said at noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. So this light was not going in the middle of the night. It was going in the middle of the day. It could have been the glory of the Lord shining around him. It says here in verse 4, He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As one who was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, he likely would have thought that God was calling out to him. But he probably would have been confused as to the question, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5 reads, and he said, who are you? Lord, the word Lord implies a word of respect. One that would demand his attention. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It was at this point that Paul or Saul would have known at least two different things. One, this Jesus and the followers that he was pursuing was actually alive. And he had been raised from the dead. The second thing he would have known is that To persecute Jesus' followers was to persecute Jesus. Now, if we were to look at Acts chapter 26, as Saul is retelling this story later, there's actually another phrase that Jesus offered to him. And it is this, Acts 26 verse 14, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what in the world would Jesus have met when Paul or Saul was on his back and the light was shining around him and he says to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What is a goad? A goad was a tool that would inflict pain on a wild animal to to bring them into order or to train them to be useful. Jesus is saying, I brought pain into your life, Saul to steer you and to make you useful for my kingdom. Why are you kicking against it? Now we could speculate as to what those goads were. It it certainly could have been Saul thinking through this empty tomb while he was on the Sanhedrin. What was the cause of this power that Peter and John had? He must have contemplated that. One of the goads could also have been seeing Stephen's face when he was being killed. The scripture says that he had a face like an angel. 
And certainly that must have gone through Saul's mind as well. And even though he claimed to be blameless, there is no one who keeps God's law. And he must have experienced the conviction of sin in his life as well. And Jesus is using all these things at this time to get Saul's attention. And he's saying, why are you persecuting me? And then we read here in verse 6, But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. It is here where there's a great line by commentator Warren Rearsby. Here you had this raging bull that began in Acts chapter 9. But now we see him being led like a docile lamb. Verse 9 tells us here, And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. He had three days to reflect on this event of him walking to Damascus. This long journey and considering his actions and living in the conviction of his sin and realizing that Jesus had come to die for his sins. Well, that is the story of his conversion. Let's consider the second part here in Acts 9, and that is Ananias' story of discipling. Look with me here at chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. You'll notice that this Ananias, as he hears the voice of the Lord, unlike Saul, he has no trouble detecting who it is. It is the voice of Jesus. This phrase, here I am, Lord, occurs in other places in the scriptures as well. In Samuel's case, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, as well as Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, it is an expression that says, here I am, reporting for duty. And Ananias is is sent out in these instructions to go down to a street called Straight, which still exists today, an old street that runs east and west. And it says here in verse 12, And this Saul is seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. That Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. God, this guy has a reputation. I know about this guy. Verse 14, And here he has authority from the chief priests to blind all who call on your name. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. We see in that few phrases, three purposes that the Lord will have for Saul's life. He will be a chosen instrument. He will carry the name 
the name of the gospel, Jesus, to the non-Jews or the Gentiles. And we see he will suffer much. Verse 17 says, So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, I hear the first words that Saul is going to hear from a fellow believer. It is the word, brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So whenever we cover a passage in the Bible, it's helpful for us not only to read it and to understand it, but then just to ponder and think through what are the implications for our life. And if we were to ask ourselves this question, what do these verses teach us about becoming a follower of Jesus? We would see at least four different answers. So let me give you the first one. God pursues man. Man does not pursue God. If one were to ask, what caused Saul's conversion? There is no way, based on Acts chapter 9, that we could say, Saul thought to himself it would be a good day, good, good idea to go out and seek God one day. There is no evidence here that he was seeking after God. In fact, he would later write, quoting from the Psalms, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. Jesus himself said in John 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In the 1920s, there was this old book that was written by Richard Connell called The Most Dangerous Game. The main character in this book is a world-renowned big game hunter by the name of Sanger Rainsford. One day he was out on the sea and the yacht that he is on trips him up and he falls out into the sea and because he's a great swimmer, he swims to an island. And during that night, he hears a gunshot and he knows that there is life on that island. Well, as it turns out, there is another avid hunter there, an old Russian general by the name of General Zorov. And the two of these guys talk. And Zorov knows about this world-famous hunter, Zanger Ransford, and they two begin to exchange hunting stories. And then General Zorov says, you know, I've, I've hunted all sorts of animals around the world, but there was one that I have always wanted to hunt. And he's actually referring to a skilled hunter. And the story unfolds of how the general goes after this world-renowned hunter. You see, the story depicts the hunter becoming the hunted. And that's exactly what we see here in Acts chapter 9. We see Saul the hunter going out, and he's going to go ahead and arrest further Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. But all the while... God is hunting him down. Maybe you've heard of C.S. Lewis. He's the author of the the Narnia books. And as C.S. Lewis reflects on how he became a Christian in his story, he sees the same pattern. 
It's as if God were the angler and C.S. Lewis were the fish and he was catching him and bringing him into a relationship. He would say it was as if he was a mouse and God was a cat, allowing stuff to happen in his life, but eventually bringing him in. C.S. Lewis would say it was like he was the fox and God would send out a pack of hounds to capture him and to bring him into a relationship. It was as if he was playing chess with this divine chess player and every maneuver that C.S. would do, God always had an answer for. The first thing that Acts 9 teaches us is that God pursues man. We do not pursue God. The second thing we see here in this passage is sincere faith is different than saving faith. The creed of our day is it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. But Saul was so sincere in his belief that he might have just taken some vacation time to go out and for sport arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. And yet God did not look upon Saul and say, you know, you may be off, but at least you're dedicated. Consequently, I approve of your efforts. No, he says, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And you note here what says in Acts chapter 9, verse 3, where this movement of Christianity is defined as the way. That is not very popular language in the year 2020, that there is the way. Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, enter by the narrow gate. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There is a distinct difference between just being sincere in what you believe and actually believing in Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, and he was raised from the dead. That is saving faith. I'll give you a third, then, that we see from this passage, and it is to follow Jesus requires humble surrender. We see Saul on the ground here in Acts chapter 9. The entire trajectory of Saul's life changed on the road to Damascus. All the credentials that he had worked so hard to achieve, he would later call dung compared to knowing Jesus. You see, the essence of this call to follow Jesus is to submit a letter of resignation. To say, I, so-and-so, hereby resign in leading my life to allow God to lead my life in every area that he sees fit. Saul got an entire set of new marching orders the day that he became a follower of Jesus. This ferocious wolf that was hell-bent on devouring God's sheep had now been converted to a sheep himself and would later become a renowned shepherd for the cause of Christ. Saul was saved to surrender and to serve. And then finally, we see here that when one receives Jesus, they receive a new family. Or to put it another way, 
One receives a new family when they receive Jesus. You see, from this moment forward, Saul or Paul, we will hear a lot about him. But we won't hear much about this discipler here, Ananias. It reminds us of a man named Edward Kimball, who in April of 1855 went out to just meet a young man in a Sunday school class. He shared the gospel with him. And that young man repented of his sins and placed his faith, believed that Jesus saved him from his sins. That young man was Dwight L. Moody, who would become a world-famous evangelist. But praise the Lord for people like Edward Kimball and Ananias. They were just faithful to what God wanted them to do, and they did it. We see here in Ananias, one who overcame his fears. God, what do you want me to do? I will do it, even if it means going to Saul, this violent persecutor of Christians. And he goes and he lays hands on him. And he says to him, Brother Saul. We see him meeting some basic needs. Here in verse 19, there's food provided for Saul, presumably by this discipler. We see him ensuring that he is baptized, and that he understands he has received the Holy Spirit. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. I wonder as we wrap this message up today, where are you? When I was a young man, even a young boy, there was an expression that we would often use, hey, what's your story? And I wonder what your story is. Can you identify with God pursuing you in the same way that God was pursuing Saul? Maybe you would say, I, I haven't been looking after God, but God has got my attention. You could identify with some goals that he has been inflicting into your life, and now you are listening to a preacher that is directing you to the word of God. You never would have thought that six months or 12 months ago. Could it be that he is drawing you? Let us be clear. To be a follower of Jesus is to humbly surrender your life. Saving faith is this, for you to come to the end of yourself, to acknowledge your sin, and to plead to be forgiven of that, and to trust that Jesus and Jesus alone will save you. It could be you are listening to this Christian and you say, I, I love to hear how a person gets saved. I love to hear their story. But I'm actually now looking at Ananias and I'm like, I want to be like that. When I see a new believer, I want to go to them and befriend them and help them understand the basics of the faith. And perhaps God right now is identifying Saul's in your life that you can do just that. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to close this message with a prayer. And I invite you to pray with me. Maybe God has brought you to this place where you want to receive Christ. You want to be a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can come and hear a message on what 
the Bible says here in Acts chapter 9, as you have worked in Saul's life, you've worked in my life, and you've worked in countless other people's lives. And I believe that you are pursuing people right now as they are hearing my voice. I pray that you would bring them to the end of themselves. They would cry out, and they would ask to be saved. They would confess their sins and trust you and in you alone to save them. And if that's you, friend, why don't you right now just call out to be saved. Say, save me. Forgive me of my sin. I want to walk for you. I want to surrender all of my life. I resign to control my life. I I give control over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As a church, this is what we want to be about. We want to be about those of you who have just trusted Christ to be able to encourage you in that. If you've done that, please let us know. You could call our church, Highland Crest, or you can email us at info at highlandcrestbaptist.com and we will get back with you. We would love to come alongside and encourage you. Have a great week. We love you and God bless you.